Well, I invite you, Bibles open, 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Let's read that together as we come again to God's Word this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit this morning, you would grant us a window into our own hearts. That you would bring to the surface what we truly love. And Father, when we discover that what we truly love often is not you, would you, instead of despair, meet us with your grace, your better love, and would we be changed? We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, in uh, many ways, uh, the Netflix film, which you've probably seen, The Social Dilemma, is a great documentary, really good documentary. And it details the increasingly dangerous side of social media. And there's one scene in particular that really stood out to me. If you've seen the film, maybe you know it. Uh, in an effort to communicate to the audience how social media uses a model or a profile of a person to target ads, encourage engagement on the platform, and likes, Tristan Harris, this ex-Google employee and design ethicist, he invites us to think of what's happening when we engage in social media like this. This is a quote. On the other side of the screen, Harris says, it's almost as if they have and they had this avatar voodoo-like model of us. All the things we've ever done, all the clicks we've ever made, all the videos we've watched, all the likes, that all gets brought back into building a more accurate model. And the model, once you have it, you can predict the types of things that person does. And so if you've seen the film, what the social dilemma does is it dramatizes that reality. And this reoccurring scene is one where three figures staring at our avatar voodoo model, they eagerly work to entice you to look at your phone or your device just one more time to view this ad the data tells them that you'll like, to feed you stories that you'll like and agree with to draw you more and more into this online world, to prey, essentially, on your desires. See, I think Silicon Valley understands something about ourselves that many of us, including followers of Jesus, do not. That at foundation, you and I are creatures of desire creatures of love. And as such, all that we do in this world proceeds from what we love, from what we desire. And on this point, I think Silicon Valley and the Apostle John 
agree. See, as we come to our text this morning, we're greeted by a commandment. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. In giving us this command, John is cutting to the heart of what threatens the communities to which he writes. He is cutting to the heart of the biggest problem that you and I face today. John and the Holy Spirit, they're convinced that your biggest problem is not your anger, not your stealing from work, not your pornography usage, not your lying to your wife, not your flakiness with your friend. John and the Holy Spirit are convinced that you and I have a love problem, a desiring problem. And until we deal with our love problem, we are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Here's how I want us to look at this passage this morning from 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and the outline will come up on the screen. First, disordered loves. Second, the love of the Father. And then thirdly and finally, becoming a person of love. I'll leave that up for one more second. Look at disordered loves, the love of the Father, and becoming a person of love. And so first, Bible's open. Let's look at our disordered loves. Let's read again, 1 John 2, verse 15, together. Do not love the world or the things in the world. What we've seen so far in 1 John is that love for Christians is devotion, wholehearted devotion to God, but also to one another. It needs to be fleshed out in our daily life in relationship to one another. This is this devotion that comes from God because God has initiated a loving relationship with us. We show that we have come to know the God who is love when we love him and others. But we see now in our text today that there is a kind of love that is not naturally inclined towards God. A kind of desiring that is not naturally inclined to serving sacrificially others. This is love that centered around ourselves, me, eagerly lusts after what it can take from the world and the things in the world. And before we see how this love leads to disordered love in our life, we need to understand what John means when he says, the world. See, as we come to the New Testament, there are times when the word world simply refers to the created world, the world in which you and I inhabit. It, it, there's no value attached to that term. It's neither good nor bad. It is simply the context in which you and I live. But often with John, when John uses this word world, John has something very specific in mind. Specifically, John has in mind the world of mankind which through its sin stands in need of reconciliation to God. Let me say that again. When John says world and uses this word world, he has in mind the world of mankind which through its sin stands in need of reconciliation to God. 
The world to which John refers is not morally neutral or spiritually neutral. It is a domain of the devil, a place of darkness. And the things of this world that we are not to love are listed for us in verse 16. Look at your Bibles with me. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. So if we back up, here's what's happened. Though God made the world good, indeed there's still much to be enjoyed in it, it is now tainted, broken with sin, created to love the Father, ourselves included. We are broken, and we have these disordered desires which lead us to desiring the flesh. Some of your translations might say lusts of the flesh. We see it and we want it. In fact, we deify that which we desire, whether it's food or drink or sex or sport or violence. There are few things in this world that we as humans have not deified. We want it and we cannot be stopped until we get it. And when we get it, we want more. And the language that John is using here has this idea of insatiable appetite. On and on and on, more and more and more and more. We want it. He continues to say, building on this, the desires of the eyes. And so we give our gaze over to that which we want. And maybe it's in the form of perusing real estate listings, longing for the better life that home will give you. Or maybe it's the hours you spend on the internet shopping, thinking of what those clothes might say about you. So we give ourselves over to the desires of the eyes. Again, it's this lusting, this longing after. But he keeps on going. He says, and the pride of life. Some translations might say the pride of possessions. So we lust after it, we buy it, and then we brag about it. Well, how do we know we've arrived in this life? Well, look at the things I have. Surely this tells you something. And all these things we must see this morning are symptomatic of one thing. The love of God and the outflowing love for others has been superseded, replaced by love of this world. Friends, I don't think I have to work hard to convince you this morning. You and I, we we know this, don't we? We have disordered loves. And I choose this language really intentionally because God's world was made to be enjoyed. We live in a good world full of good pleasures and good things, all pointing us back to the good and loving Father. See, to leave today and think you need to just drink water and eat bread and live in a hut somewhere by yourself, it's not the point of the text this morning, that you would just sort of experience this extreme escapism. No, The point is that you and I naturally take that which is good and make it into God. We take that which is good and we turn it into that which is God. And the Bible calls this dynamic, this activity that we we do all the time, uh, idolatry. And idol worship, if that sounds strange to you, I don't think it's actually an act reserved for an archaic people in a far-off 
place. No, idol worship happens every day in Vancouver. Idol worship even happens sometimes in my own home. And few people talk about the reality of idolatry in our day and age with more clarity than Tim Keller. Listen to what he writes. Keller says, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. I want you to hear these words, Christ City. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Christ City, this may sound strange, perhaps even a little bit blasphemous to you, but bear with me. When did you sacrifice to your idols this week? Was it in the car? When annoyed at the speed of the car in front of you, you unloaded that slew of profanities. In that moment, was the God of convenience, the God of expediency, was he pleased? Or maybe it was late at night when you stared at your laptop, went to those sites you promised never to go back to. Was it then that you made an offering to your desires? Unless you think this is a you thing and not a me thing and an us thing. Jake, do you remember when you spoke angrily towards others this week? Towards those who threatened your idol of control? Or your idol of self-perception? Or your idol of power? Did my outburst satisfy these gods? And of course, the answer is no. One of the things about counterfeit gods is that they can never be satisfied. Like John tells us in our text, they want more and more and more and more and more and more and more until you find yourself in a place you promised you'd never be completely exhausted and without hope. And I want to invite you this morning, if that is you, and you're on this Zoom call, and that's where you find yourself, Don't hang up. Don't turn off your screen. Do not leave us. If it took you everything this morning to put, to get on this call, despite the shame and the guilt and self-loathing that you feel, would you take my hand and would you let me lead us and you to the second point together? This is our second point this morning. Point number two, the love of our Father or the love of the Father. How do we reorder our disordered loves? How do we cure our adultery? There's only one way. It's through the love of the Father. Look at verse 15 and 16 again with me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It is clear in these two verses that there are two competing loves in our life, right? A love of the world that we've looked at, directed towards the world, which seeks self-gratification through the pillaging 
of whatever it desires versus love of the Father, orientating our love and our life completely toward our Heavenly Father. And for some of you, this might sound overly binary, too black and white. But I want to take us to the book of James. And James, in his typical, no-nonsense, straightforward uh, fashion, says it this way. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, James leads off with. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John James, they're both so clear. Love of the world and love of the Father cannot coexist. Love of the world and love of the Father cannot coexist. Now, this is not to say our love will always be pure or unidirectional, but only to say this, that only one love can occupy the seat of your heart. Only one love can occupy that place of privilege. Only one love can be the true love from which all other loves are ordered, from which all other loves flow, either love of this world or the love of the Father. And if that's the case, how do we ensure this morning that we have the love of the Father driving our life? What can I do? I have to start with bad news this morning. I'm afraid we must begin with a frank recognition that all our other loves have failed us. And I'm looking at you on the screen right now. I don't speak of this lightly. To dismantle the idols of our life is, is painful work. It's hard work. It will require painful realizations with real, painful consequences. But we must be, and I must be so clear this morning, there is no coexisting of these loves. So when you finally reach bottom, your loves have long failed you. Keller says, I'll quote him again, that we have four options this morning. This is from his book, Counterfeit Gods. He writes, No person... Not even the best one can give your soul all it needs. This cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life. But we especially feel it in the things in which we set our hopes. Then Keller says this, When you finally realize this, there are four things you can do. I want us to note these things. I want us to think about COVID and this pandemic. And I want us to think about how we've responded to the way COVID has exposed our idols. Think about these four responses. You can blame the things that are disappointing you and try to move on to better ones. That's a way of continued idolatry and spiritual addiction, he says. You can blame yourself and beat yourself. That's a way of self-loathing and shame. You can blame the world. That's how you get hard and cynical and empty. Or he says you can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. Christ City, when you hit rock bottom, which of these four ways are you tempted to go? You can blame the other things. 
and continue somewhere else. Spiritual addiction, continued idolatry. You, you can blame yourself, right? Beat yourself up. You can blame the world. Or he said, you can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. Which of these four paths have you been walking the past year? For me, personally, honestly, spiritual addiction, maybe a little bit of the second one, maybe a bit of the third as well. Or you can reorient the entire focus of your life on God. This is what John says. Do you know the Father has loved you? He has loved you in giving up his son to rescue a world that hated him. Do you know that the Father does love you? He doesn't see your sin or shame anymore. In Christ, he loves you like a child, like a good father. And you know, John says in our text this morning, that he will always love you. Look what he writes in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world, its evil ways, its ruler, its temptations is coming to an end. And one day, if you're not careful, you will wake up to find that the gods that you spent your life serving have abandoned you have left you, have exposed you, that they, these gods, along with all who serve them, have now been judged and found wanting. But who remains? Who abides forever? John tells us, the one who, having received the love of the Father, walks in love towards him and others on this earth. The one who lives not for these gods, but from the love of the Father. Where are you living from this morning, Christ City? Some of you right now are going 100 miles per hour on the treadmill of life. Trying to appease, trying to appease, trying to appease, trying to. And John invites us this morning to live from somewhere, to begin in the right place, from the love of the Father. And he couches all of this, he frames all of this with the reminder that the world and its desires are passing away. I can say this for a few more years, and then I won't be able to say it anymore. But my favorite prayer as a relatively young person, I realize I'm kind of on the edge right now, as a relatively young person, preaching to a church full of relatively young people, my favorite prayer comes from Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6. I'll put it on the screen, but I also invite you to turn in your Bibles, because it's a prayer you should read this week. It's a prayer you should begin your day with this week. Look at Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6 with me. Listen to what's prayed there. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. 
Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6. Live there this week. Christ City, you will die. Unless the Lord comes back, you will die. And I will die. And in light of this fleeting moment, in light of this reality, the psalmist writes something else elsewhere. Uh, Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. I want to invite us this morning to recommit to loving in light of eternity, to ordering our loves to reflect that which will last. I promise you at the end of the age, when you're face to face with Jesus, you're not going to be like, oh man, I wish I spent more time on that boat. Like, oh, I wish I just ate or drank better in this life. I promise you, the thing that you'll desire is the thing that you're experiencing in fullness in the moment. I wish I tasted then what I taste in fullness now. This is the love of the Father. This week, I saw this sign at the bus stop at Main and Terminal. Maybe you know it. And it said, Happy Pride. And all around it was the slogan. Again, maybe you've heard this slogan before. Love is love. Love is love. Love is love. It was all around this, this, this poster. And the sign didn't make me angry. It made me really, really sad. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're on this call, can you just please hear my heart for a moment? When we hold up love for the world and love for self and love as we've defined it as the highest love, the greatest love, we are missing out on something so much better. If you're not a follower of Jesus listening right now this morning, let me invite you really simply to come and taste the love of the Father. Come and fall down before a God who will not disappoint, who will not leave you exhausted in shame, who will stop that treadmill which is killing you, And if you are a follower of Jesus listening this morning, if you're a Christian, do you believe that you know this better love? That you have this better love, a more satisfying love, one that will last for eternity? If you believe that, tell someone this week. Show someone this week. Here's how I want to end. I want to end by being very, very practical this morning. I want to go to point three, becoming a person of love. We've seen so far our disordered loves. We've seen how we need the love of the Father to come and transform the way that we love and rightly order our loves. How do we now then become a person of love, living from the love of the Father? That's a question we have before us. And to answer this question, which is a big one and a multifaceted one, I'm going to suggest just one thing this morning, just one thing for us as we head into our week, and it's this. We become a person of love or a people of love when we are those who are eager to spend time in his presence. We become people of love when we are also a people 
who are eager to spend time in his presence. Jesus says in John's gospel, in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I am prone, and maybe you can relate, to abiding in other places in Jesus' love. I abide sometimes in this anxious, circular loop of my work responsibilities. I abide sometimes on Netflix, seeking medication from my day's frustration. And if it's true, as historian Robert Louis Wilkin notes, that only love is continuously fashioning itself according to the beloved, then you and I are becoming like that which we love. We're becoming like that which we love, like Schmeagel in The Lord of the Rings, right? Whose love for the ring transforms him into a creature deformed by desire. The same thing is happening to you and to me. And if you're not satisfied with who you are in this season, I would encourage you to examine the love that is shaping you. And let's not kid ourselves. Spending 10 minutes reading our Bibles and three hours shopping online is going to form us in a particular way, in a certain direction. It's going to point our desires into a certain category. And that disordered place, that disordered love, will not satisfy. That same historian goes on to say this, Desire feeds on absence, but love lives off presence. Desire feeds on absence, but love lives off presence. Disordered desire is all about wanting what we can't get. Because as soon as we get it, that thing fails us, right? So we need more. A new challenge, a new job, new friends, a new diet, a new church, and then we die. And then we die unsatisfied. We never found that thing. Love is satisfied. Our desires fully and completely met once for all in the presence of our Father. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, in the presence of the one who loves us, love lives off presence. Friends, the problem of our disordered desires cannot be met by Silicon Valley. Because ultimately, the problem wasn't created by Silicon Valley. Sure, social media has made us more anxious and more depressed and more hostile and violent to others. But let's be honest, we've been coveting, we have been lusting, we have been deifying the created long before Facebook, long before Instagram. The problem, therefore, cannot be legislated away or overcome by the collective will, or by turning off our notifications. The problem will not be solved in simply pushing down these desires, but having them supplanted by a better desire. Having our loves, small l loves, replaced by a capital L love. It is only in this better desire, this better love, that you and I can be freed from the slavery of our idolatry this morning. 
that you and I can begin to taste the true life which Jesus came to bring now and forever. As our ancestor, our brother in Christ, Augustine, once famously said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Christ City, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him and him alone. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we come. Recognizing our disordered desires, the ways in which we lust after the world and the things of the world, and we confess them to you. We ask that in the quiet of this moment, in our heart, you would expose those things. And we bring these things to you in the confidence, knowing that you're not a father who is unjust or cruel, but who is loving and kind. And in Christ does not condemn us unto death, but restores us and transforms us and reorders what we love. Do that work in me. Do that work in us. We pray do that work in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.